Well, this morning, I have been really looking forward to this. It's, it's a little bit humorous because I'm not a science person. Science isn't my passion, but when I learn about these things, I do get excited. So while I, I am certainly more on the philosophical end of things and I'm an ideas person, I do. When I learn about these things, it is super exciting to me. So I do want to have that disclaimer at the outset. I'm not a scientist, nor do I play one on TV. So I've learned things along the way, and um, I am not I am not passing myself off as a scientific expert, but I do know some of these things, and so I want to share it with you. And along the way, I'm going to uh, pass along resources so that this is this is not even a drop in the ocean of of what I'm going to be presenting this morning. There are books and 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 lectures and DVDs and on and on and on on all of these subjects and then some. So I want to encourage you that what I'm going to be presenting, the sky is the limit as far as if you guys hear something that, oh, I'm really interested in that. I'd love to learn more about that. There is so much information on there. So. We, we are going to get started. The first thing that I want to cover are some different, um, I couldn't really come up with a good word, so I use the word theories, but I don't mean theories in the scientific sense, like the, the, the theory of evolution. Um, I mean theory as far as different ways that people approach origins, people approach these, these different aspects. So I want to cover this at the outset, and then we're going to continue on from here. So there are differing points of view that people come from. The first one we're going to cover real quickly is young earth creationism. Now, I found this to be um, pretty pervasive in the church. Um, I think from, from what I've seen anyway, it's because people just make the assumption that you read Genesis and, and it must be taken in a literal fashion and therefore the, you know, the scientists are a bunch of dirty atheists who just say that the universe is way older than, than it really is and that um, that's not true and that we need to go by literally what the book of Genesis says and um, as far as doing math calculations back, so therefore the universe can only be, you know, th a few thousand years old, essentially. And um, there, there is information on that. That's not what I'm going to be presenting this morning, however. One issue that I have seen that I want to alert people to with young earth creationism that I've observed over the years that I've been involved with this is that there can be some acrimony that comes up within the body of Christ when it comes to people who are young earth creationists and not young earth creationists. And it's a very sad thing to me because there shouldn't be in the body of Christ, such acrimony on such an issue as this. It's a bad witness, quite honestly, to those who are outside the body to, for them to see us arguing on, in, in, in a non-respectful way. And what I have observed among young earth creationists in particular is that they seem to, they seem to attach an importance to this specific issue that if you don't if you don't hold to a young earth creationist position that you 
you do not have a high view of Scripture and that you're compromising on Scripture and what else are you compromising on? And I would like to see less acrimony in the body of Christ around this issue because we're not talking about does God exist? We're not talking about did the resurrection happen? We're not talking about this is a very secondary issue. So I want to give you that background as we're moving forward. The next, uh, the next one that we're going to talk about is old earth creationism. Um, I've, I would fall under this one and the next one, and I'll get to the intelligent design in a minute. Old earth creationism, we still, uh, we still believe in special creation. Uh, this is not the same as believing in Darwinian evolution. An old earth creationist simply says, what does the science say? Okay, the universe is so many billions of years old. Okay, so that's when God created it. And let's look at the scientific evidence, and in no way does that uh, contradict scripture. And, and old earth creationism, I want to stress, is not the same as evolution. They are two completely different things. An old earth creationist simply believes that God created the universe when the science shows that it created, he created the universe, and evolution is in a different category. The next one is intelligent design. We're going to be talking about that a fair amount today. Uh, most people in the intelligent design movement, in fact, I don't think that I've even heard of one person in the intelligent design movement uh, that is a young earth creationist. I would say most, if not all, fall in the old earth creationist category. They too, they, they say, here's what we observe in the evidence, and it points to intelligence. It does not point to random random chance mutation that, that uh, evolutionists would say. So they too, they, they will look at all sorts of areas of science from biology to physics to, to chemistry to molecular biology to all of these, and they say, this is what we find, and it doesn't seem to be explainable by nothing, by accident, chance, etc. So that is, that is intelligent design. Then there's theistic evolution. Oh, and I should say, in the intelligent design movement, not everyone is a believer. There are still people who will say, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know if Michael Behe is a believer or not, but I know that there are many in, in the intelligent design movement who are not believers, but, but they look at the evidence and say, yeah, we're not a believer, but this doesn't seem to be explainable by a random chance with no God. Um, so theistic evolution, they are believers. You'll see the word theistic. I've also seen them recently called creation, creation, evolutionary creationists. And it seems that they are trying to get away from, the, that, they're, that they're trying to change their name a little bit, but they're still primarily known generally as theistic evolutionists. They are believers who want to say, well, God used evolution some way. I, um, I haven't particularly seen evidence for this, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, but that is out there. And as we're going to talk about evolution for a few minutes, um, evolution seems to be uh, collapsing in on itself. And so for believers to, to want to hitch their wagon to the idea of evolution for, for one reason or another, 
um, I think it's a good thing to follow the evidence where it leads. And um, so that's, that's basically all I'm going to say about theistic evolution. And the last one is Darwinian evolution. We could call it, um, we could call it materialist evolution, naturalistic evolution, but it's different than theistic evolution in the sense that um, these, these would be the, the atheists who hold to there is no God at all. The only thing that exists in the material world is that, that which is material. There is no supernatural anything that occurred. It is all just random chance. So though, these are the different things that we are going to be talking about today. And it's important to know what is out there. And, and the different theories that are, that are in play here. So real quickly, before we get into um, the actual arguments, I want to show you, there are a couple of things. Um, when I say that Darwinian evolution is, I'm not saying that it's on its last legs, because there's a lot vested in the theory of evolution. And uh, one of the problems that atheists have is we cannot let the divine foot in the door, so we have to have some thing that we hang on to, even though more and more and more and more they're realizing that the theory of evolution, Darwinism anyway, is not sufficient. It's, it's, it's certainly not sufficient to explain origins, which it doesn't claim to, but it's, it's definitely not sufficient to explain the, the uh, the creative power necessary to bring forth new species. Random, random processes is not a good explanation for what we actually see in, in the animal life, in, in anything, really. So this is happening more and more. Yes, a th um, I've highlighted the, the um, headline as the point. A thousand scientists isn't uh, isn't a lot in the whole field of science, but it's this is this is just one um, this is just w one more piece. I mean, I, I see this because I, I look at this all the time and I and I follow these people on Facebook, so I'll see these articles pop up regularly. This is only one one recent article. Another one I wanted to point out this book, this is a, a screenshot of a book by by uh, Thomas Nagel, he's a, he's a professor at NYU, and this, the title is called, it's kind of hard to see, but it's called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Now, he's an atheist, he, and, and he fully admits, I don't, I'm, do not want there to be a God. I'm not going in the God direction. I'm just saying, can we be honest that this over here is almost certainly false? So he's saying, let's be, let's be honest about some things. And there was, a, there was also a meeting in Cambridge just in April of, of people in the scientific realm wanting to start the discussion of we need to, we need to talk about evolution and we need, to, we need to start thinking, hey, this over here has problems. We need to figure, we need to figure out something else because this isn't this is no longer working and as we're seeing the 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 amazing thing about the graciousness of god and the goodness of god is that 
the more we go, the further we go as far as technological advancements to be able to, to see more and more of what has happened in the, in the past and, and finding evidence with DNA and, and chemistry and biology, the more inescapable God is in all of this. So I want to encourage all of us, none of us should be afraid of science. All of us should, should look at what is going on in science, and, and it's, it is incredible, the evidence that just continues to come out. Um, for example, just, just in the last couple months, these two books have come out. These are both um, intelligent design people. The one is, the one is called Darwin Devolves by Michael Behe. He, he is a molecular biologist, and he wrote, um, for those of you who have heard of it, he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box several, many years ago, I, well, I don't know, in the 90s maybe, where he, where he coined the term irreducible complexity. And we're going we're gonna to cover that just briefly in, in this, where he, he's a fairly significant player, and he says now that we are able, now that the, uh, the genome is able to be sequenced and more and more more and more creatures' genomes are able to be sequenced, we are able to see where these adaptations, mutations happened. And what Darwin said was that these mutations would happen and they would benefit creatures. They would, they would add to, you know, you've all seen in your textbooks that tree of life where he asserted that, that every creature came from something and then it just branched off and branched off and branched off and became more and more um, complex. Well, what Behe is saying is that in the, in the DNA that we're seeing, we're able to see where those changes happen. One example that he gives, well, what his point is in Darwin Devolves is that these are detrimental, ultimately, that they might help the, the, they might help the creature survive immediately, but in the long term, if the creature, if, if more you know, if uh, the environment changes and more changes need to happen, that creature is now in, in kind of the lurch because things break. And he says, for example, if you're driving down the road and your life depends on you immediately getting more gas mileage or else you're dead, what are you going to do? Well, you could, you could take, throw off the doors, you could throw off the spare tire, you could get rid of maybe the back seats, you could get rid of other things because your life depends on it. But what kind of state are you gonna be in now once your life is no longer in danger? Well, your car is gonna be kind of in bad shape because you're not gonna have doors and a spare tire and everything else. And um, so that book just came out. The other one called Foresight, um, it, he is a Brazilian chemist. He actually just came up here a couple of weeks ago to give a to talk about his book. And he's talking about in his field of chemistry, what he's seeing is that as he as he looks at things, it's not the the complexity of the things that he is lays out in his book is not that this random chance can happen. It's that it's that foresight was needed when, the, when these things that he's talking about were created so that down the road it would, it would work the way that it was supposed to. And so it, these are just two of the many 
you know, volumes of material that keep coming out and keep coming out as more and more, uh, as more and more discoveries are made. So this is really, really exciting stuff. Real quickly, don't panic. I know there's a lot on there as far as resources. Rena was fantastic about getting, I think, all of these on, on, in the newsletter. So if you pick up the newsletter, if you have it in your inbox, these are all listed on here. Um, they're broken down, and again, these are just, I mean, I wanted to fit it on one slide, so a lot, a lot was left off. Um, but the first one, you can, the organizations and websites and people, you can, there are websites, you can follow them on Facebook, you can follow them on Twitter, there's, they're always, they're always putting out content. There's tons of, of, uh, YouTube videos, um, Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist, he has amazing, amazing um, presentations that he gives, and he's written tons of books. Um, and so those, um, the, I want to highlight too in the books, the Seven Days That Divide the World by John Lennox. John Lennox is uh, just a lovely man, and he's uh, got two PhDs. He's a professor of mathem mathematics at, I always, get confused on Cambridge and Oxford, but one of, one of the two. And, and he wrote this book um, just dealing with the whole issue of the Genesis seven-day account. So it's a, it's a good treatment on that. So there, there are those um, I highly recommend. And those DVDs are fantastic. They're, you know, they're not the best animation in the world, but the, the material that they cover, and they're only DVDs. So, you know, an hour compared to, you know, Stephen Meyer's um, signature in the cell is like that thick as a book. So it's, it's really fast. So those are some resources. And now we're going to get on to actual arguments, starting with the cosmological argument. Cosmological argument is very simple. It, it really boils down to why is there something rather than nothing? Why, why does anything exist in the first place? So this is a version called the Kalam cosmological argument, but they're, but they're pretty similar. So it goes, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now that's important, the begins to exist part. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. So what I've heard from some, some of the new atheists anyway, they'll say, oh yeah, well then who created God? You present this and they say, well, then, who, then who created God? Well, the first one says, whatever begins to exist has a cause. We're not talking about a created God, we're talking about a and an eternal God who has always existed forever and ever and ever. So it's just a, it's just a, it's it's not a valid objection. So the history behind this is that before Hubble, um, so Edwin Hubble made some discoveries in the 20s that I'll cover. And before him, the scientists were of course wanting to say that the universe was eternal. It was just in a steady state. It had always been here, therefore no God. Because if the universe was eternal, then there's no need for a God because it's always been here. There's no need for a God to have created the universe. Problem happened in the 20s when Edwin Hubble discovered what, what is called now the, the red shift. So 
in light, in light waves, when something is moving away, the light waves will expand and will leave this red, uh, like a red trailing off, because that's the, as, a, as the light waves expand, the red is at that end of the spectrum. So when he saw this, he saw this red shift in these galaxies, and, and what that means is that they are moving away. Because they are moving away, what that means is that the universe is expanding. If the universe is expanding, what that means is that it's not in a steady state. If, if it's expanding, that means that it was smaller, and that means that there was a beginning. And this was a problem. This is where, this is where the Big Bang came in. This is where Big Bang cosmology came in. And scientists really did not want this because a, an eternal universe is far preferable if you don't want a god. But now that the universe had a beginning is basically inescapable. And what's interesting is uh, recently, in probably recent decades, I would say, because, because this data is inescapable, now they're coming up with new, new ways to explain away this. The, the, the redshift, the redshift, I should say, and the, and the fact that there was a beginning to the universe. They come up with what is called the multiverse theory. And what, what they say is, oh, well, you know, there's this, there's this universe generator that, um, of course, we have no evidence for, but, but um, it just pops out universes. It just keeps popping out universes. And eventually, it's, as it just keeps popping out universes, eventually, we're going to get this one. And eventually, it'll just happen. This is what they have to come up with to explain away the Big Bang. Um, as, as Greg Kogel, my, my you know, apologist that I love, Greg Kogel says, a Big Bang needs a Big Banger. So, um, it's, it's, it is a multiverse or the universe started at a point in time. If the universe started at a point in time, what caused it? Our universal experience is that all effects have causes, except the universe. I mean, everything that we experience in life, the effect has a cause, but not the universe. It, it, seems, it seems, I'll just say preposterous. So, so, if the universe had a cause, or if the universe had a beginning, what caused it? Did something cause the universe, or did no thing cause the universe? I would say it's a little more likely that something caused the universe. So what is that thing? Since we're not really going to talk about the multiverse, since there's zero evidence for it. The cause of the universe, since the universe, at the beginning of the universe, that is when space and time came into existence. So the cause must be outside of space and time, must be spaceless and timeless. The material world came into existence at that time, so the cause must be outside of that, must be immaterial. The cause of the universe must be itself uncaused, and the cause of the universe must be powerful, because something, something that, that is not powerful could not create this. 
So what we have is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, powerful something. And that's, that's, what we, that's really what we have to deal with. Now, a materialist is not going to give any ground on this. And when I, when I have talked to um, atheists about this, they just say, their ex explanation is, actually, it's not an explanation. They say, I don't know, but I know science is going to come up with the answer someday. Now, I just want to point out that believers all the time over the years get accused of what is called God of the gaps, where they'll say, we don't know, so we're going to stick G-O-D in here, and that's our explanation. That to me, if they say, and I've heard this numerous times on numerous issues, they'll say, I don't know, but science is going to come up with an explanation someday. I'll just say, uh-uh, if, if we're not allowed to do that, you're not allowed to do that. So this is the, we can argue about evolution all day long, but they have no explanation for where the universe came from. It's a problem. And, and they, the multiverse, as, as William Lane Craig um, points out, even if there was a multiverse, fine tuning was required for there to be a universe generator in the first place to be able to pop out pop out universes. So the, the problem has just gone back a step. And I want to point out too, if you are interested in, in learning more about the multiverse, because this, if, you talk, if you talk to non-believers, it will come up at some point in time. There is a great talk on, on uh, YouTube that Hugh Ross, he was in my list of resources, that Hugh Ross gives on, on the multiverse. And of course, he doesn't he doesn't agree with it, but he said, let's take for the sake of argument, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about this. So it's a really interesting uh, talk. So I, I do recommend if you just type in Hugh Ross multiverse, it'll come, it'll come right up. The next one that we're going to talk about is the teleological argument, Teleolo or argument from fine tuning. Um, the teleological argument uh, comes from the word telos, Teleological comes from the Greek word telos, meaning end or design or goal. There, there, is a, there is a goal in mind. There is an end in mind. So that's, they didn't just decide to come up with some crazy word. Um, it does come from something. So this, this um, there is a lot in science uh, in, as far as studying the universe goes that, that is a part of the teleological argument. But anything, anything that they study in science that appears to have fine-tuning will fall under this category. So, you know, looking at the human body and its complexities, looking at, um, as we'll see in uh, a couple slides, the bacterial flagellum. So it's not just cosmology in the universe and let's look at fine-tuning for that. There is that. Fine-tuning is a wide, wide field. And what's interesting about this argument is that in the last century, the, the world's foremost philosophical atheist, he was a smart guy, his name was Antony Flew, he was persuaded by this argument. It was this argument, eventually, that he had to say. He, he, as far as I know, before his death, he did not come to Christ, um, but he did, he did convert from atheism to deism based on this argument because of the evidence uh, behind it. So, 
I'm not going to, I'm not going to read all of these off to you. This is, you guys can read these for yourselves. Um, but the point is on, on a lot of these, these are the, these are the, the narrow, these are just how narrow all of these have to be. And if they, if, if they fall, if they, if these constants change outside of that range, very, very bad things happen and no life is possible. So, you know, gravity, the electromagnetic force, the cosmological constant, the mass density of the universe, um, the expansion rate of the universe. If any one of these changes more than the limits that is on there, there, there is no life possible. And I put up there, by contrast, you can see how large those numbers are. The, <laughs> the initial entropy, I like that. I, I, couldn't, even, I couldn't even write that in, the, in, the, in how it would not look weird. The initial entropy of the universe, one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd. Compared to the number of cells in your body is only 10 to the 14, and the number of seconds since time began is 10 to the 20. So these are, these are just, and these are only a few. I, I wasn't going to overwhelm you guys with, with all of these things that you're not going to remember. You'd have to, you know, read books to see more into this. I know you're not going to remember all of this stuff. I just want to show you th this is what is known. That, that, these, that these things for there to be life for, or for the universe to not collapse in on itself or for, you know, stars to exist or for, you know, on and on and on and on. This too. These are elements that are needed for, again, for life. All of these, the, and these are just a few, these are just a few of the things, you know, correct location in the galaxy, obviously the correct location from the sun, because if we were a little closer, we'd fry. If we were a little further, we'd freeze. Um, protected by giant planets from comets, obviously, the correct type of star, star meaning the sun. So the, the star, the sun is a star. Um, a large moon, we need a large moon because the, the moon actually stabilizes the earth on its axis and it gives us uh, mild seasonal changes. Also, of course, we know that it affects the tides and the tides affect all of life on earth because if there were no tides, the, the ocean wouldn't be able to be re-oxygenated and then all of life in the ocean would die and we would die. So. These are, these are a few of the elements that are needed, again, for life. And also, um, in the Milky Way, where we are is, is just one more thing. Where we are right here is amazing because if we were here, if we were in the center, there are black holes, there are a density of stars and supernova that are hostile to life. Also, in the outer regions, out here, there's not enough heavy elements to build Earth-sized planets. So, we, if we were out here, we, well, we wouldn't exist because the materials aren't there. Um, we are in what is called the galactic habitable zone in, around here, but not, we, we also can't be in these spiral arms either for for many reasons. Um, one, because 
the, the interesting thing about where we are is that we are in the best location in our galaxy, even for observation. So God, in his gracious, again, in his graciousness to us, it is, it is remarkable that, of course, he knows the beginning from the end. He knows the beginning of time from the end of time. He knew this time period would come where we could observe all of these things. And we are in the exact right location in the galaxy to make observation not only possible, but in the best in the best possible place. If we were in a different location, we would have all of these stars, the the, the starlight and the stardust that would be that would be clouding our vision, that would make it impossible to see out. We we would have a distorted view if we weren't in this location. So we are in the right location and we are in the right location where habitability is maximized and threats are minimized. So it's, a, it's, just, it, it's just an incredible thing. And the, the last thing that I really want to cover on fine-tuning is this. This is called a bacterial flagellum. This was covered in, this was uh, brought out first, to my knowledge, in Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box. Really, really excellent work. This, so the background behind this is Darwin, when Darwin was doing his work, he could not see inside of a cell. He, so he just made the assumption that cells were just blobs and then there wasn't much to them. And, and so he, he had to make all these assumptions because he just didn't know. And he assumed that as time went on uh, and, and uh, evidence came forth that the evidence would just support the assumptions that he made. And of course, the exact opposite in every situation has happened. So when we study this, um, and, and of course, Darwin says um, it goes, that everything comes from the simple to the complex. So there's, we started from single cell, never mind where anything came from, we're not going to talk about that, but we, we came from single cell and it, and it built up and built up and built up and built up. Well, the problem here, and I put this quote on here that this um, Harvard biophysicist calls this the most efficient machine in the universe. This is one of these things that is what is called irreducibly complex. This does not reduce any further. There is no, scientists will look at things and they'll say, okay, um, this, th this could have evolved from this and this could have happened and this could have happened. If any one of these parts of this bacterial flagellum were not there, this would not work at all. So this, there is nothing about this that could have evolved because it, any, any part of this that went away, um, it, would, it would just not work. It would be like, I don't know, if you took the battery out of your car or something. Your car is not going to work without a battery in it. So you take one of these parts away from this bacterial flagellum, it's not going to work. It is irreducibly complex. And that's not the only, that's not the only example of irreducible complexity. It's just one of the examples. So that is a, a just not even scratching the surface of the argument from fine-tuning or the teleological argument. There is so much, if any of you are interested in this, it's just the sky's the limit. All right, 
we have to move on to what I call the problem of information. This, this isn't a, you know, like the problem of evil is a term of art. This isn't some, this isn't some actual term. I call it the problem of information. And um, for resources on this, I listed Stephen Meyer up there. Stephen Meyer has written books on this as coming out with a third or fourth one in the fall, um, or sorry, later in the summer. The problem of information is this. Where does information come from? All of us know our universal experience with information is that information comes from a mind. If you were walking on the beach and you saw written in the sand, hi, fill in the blank your name, I'm so glad that you came. Walk down the beach further and, you know, it's, it's a specific message. That is information. It's not, it's not random just letters, etc. you would not assume, wow, the tide must have been pretty tricky today to put that randomly right there. No, you're going to assume that some person with a mind put that specific information right there for you to see. Same thing if, you know, some atheists will say, well, if, if, if it was written in the sky, um, well, that, that comes from a mind. So the problem here will begin with this, right? I know it's difficult to see, but um, th this, is, this is basically a, a geologic timeline. I'm sure you guys have all seen these in your textbooks. Right here is what we're going to look at. This is, the, this is called the Cambrian time period. We're going to talk about the Cambrian explosion. What happened was, from this time period prior to the, the Cambrian explosion, we had, we had um, these really, really, really simple creatures, and then suddenly, at around 541 million years ago, suddenly, in the fossil record, there's all of these much more complex creatures out of nowhere with no transitional species, and there's no, there's no clear link at all from the simpler creatures to the more complex creatures in the, in the Cambrian time period. Even Darwin back then said, and I put the quote up there, to the question why we do not have rich fossiliferous deposits belonging to those assumed earliest time periods, I can give no satisfactory answer. Again, he assumed that over time that they would find the fossil records, and to this day, they still have not. And so the problem is, where did that information come from to create the new body types, to create the new species? Where did any of that information come from? It had to come from somewhere, but where? And so if, if Darwinists want to say evolution, again, there are these new species that just appeared suddenly with no, with no record of in-between from this layer of species to the next layer of species, where did the information come from to, to create all of those? It, it's, a, it's a real, real problem. New genetic information is required for new animals to form. And so the question is, where did it come from? And how can evolution, which is random by definition, generate new information? It's, it's a significant problem. So Stephen Meyer also has a book called Signature in the Cell, 
where he talks about DNA. Now, I wanted, to, I wanted to have both of these because on this slide, you're not going to get these letters. But you can see these letters that, that in, in reality, I mean, just like, just like in computer coding, we say zeros and ones. Well, these obviously aren't on the DNA itself, but, but these are these um, chemical compounds that, that will attract the DNA to itself. And so... There are, it's a four chemical function like, an, like alphabetic text or zeros and ones in the, in the computer code. And since, since the genome has been sequenced, this is, I mean, this is an endless problem if you want to say that there is no God and that there is no mind behind what we, what we know exists. For example, just a single-celled organism requires four to 500 proteins and requires several hundred thousand base pairs. Whoops, I don't want, okay. This is a base pair. This is a base pair, this is a base pair. Requires several hundred thousand base pairs. And they must be arranged in precise order. Again, not random. These, these can't just be slapped together even though they, they are they attract to one another. If they just attract randomly, you're not going to get life. You're, you're going to get nothing, actually. It has to be in precise order to the construction of proteins to keep cells alive. Now, for a human, that's just for a single-celled creature. For a human, there are three billion in a strand of DNA that must be precisely arranged for there to be life for there to be human life. I have a quick 90-second video from Stephen Meyer that explains this really well. Oops, there it is. Maybe I need to start here. All right. Now, that was all probably difficult, but I'm now gonna make it simple. I've got a little visual aid here with a message pandering to the local audience, okay? <laughs> La Mirada rocks, okay? Sometimes I put a Z in there because my students told me that made it even more cool. Okay. Um, now, <clears throat> this is, you might recognize, a magnetic chalkboard. This is a little metallic chalkboard, and there are magnets in the back of these letters. So there are forces of attraction, forces of necessity, if you will, that explain why the message sticks to the medium. Now, that's exactly the same, that, that's exactly what's going on in DNA. There are forces of attraction that explain why the message sticks to the medium, but those forces of attraction don't discriminate. I can put the L here, here, or here, anywhere I like, okay? And notice that those forces of attraction do not determine the arrangement. I can destroy this arrangement and make another one very easily, okay? So, um, and so let me put it to you now, maybe, as a rhetorical question. Oops, but I destroyed the message. Let's go back to the message. Rocks. Oh, I dropped it. Let's talk about the message I had at the beginning. Was that the result? <laughs> Sometimes these visual aids are more trouble than they're worth. <laughs> what have I got now? Lada Riminara. No, that's not good. It's sick. That doesn't good. Um, was the message I had at the beginning the result of the magnetism? Okay, that's the key point. So... What he's pointing out there is that 
in DNA, because there's magnetism, any of these base pairs could have just attracted however, but that wouldn't have accomplished anything. That wouldn't have resulted in life. That wouldn't have resulted in anything. All of these three billion base pairs must have been arranged precisely or else there's just, there's nothing. So again, where did the information come from in the first place to even have the base pairs? And how did they get arranged so specifically in every single one of you? Information has always come from a mind. We, for those of you who do computer coding or work at Boeing and create plans, engineering plans, there, all of that comes from a mind, and we know this. So to say that something as complex as that, you know, all other information comes from a mind, but not that. That was just random chance. Is just, is a little bit silly. And I'll finish up with this. Um, Stephen Meyer also gives this, this uh, analogy of the bike lock. So if, but what about if, if given enough time, could, could it have just happened over time, over time, over time? Well, if a bike lock has just four channels, as you see on there, a four-channel bike lock has 10,000 possibilities. But what if it had 10 channels? A 10-channel bike lock has 10 billion possibilities. Or what if it had 77 channels, which is more than the number of atoms in the Milky Way? Well, that's how long is that going to take? But it doesn't have 77 channels. It has 3 billion channels. So it, to say given enough time, given enough time, time plus matter plus chance is just, it's really not reasonable. It's not a reasonable conclusion to come to. And, and if, they, if they were not pre-committed to materialism and not allowing a divine foot in the door, they, they might be open to saying, all right, where does the actual evidence lead? So uh, with that, I am going to wrap it up. And if there is any quick question, because I'm already slightly over again, um, I am happy to to do that or not. Maybe Bob's just going to cut me off here. I'm cutting you off. Time is up. But I guess what I would like to, uh, to encourage us all, um, first of all, you can't imagine the amount, maybe you can, the amount of time and energy that our sister has put in to preparing for this. Um, she has spent herself um, for weeks and weeks, months and months, and frankly, almost a lifetime in preparing to be able to teach this today. So I hope that you will uh, join me now in showing your appreciation for her. And 